If you have been here the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Revelation. And honestly, the book of Revelation is a pretty intimidating book, wouldn't you say? We've dealt with a whole lot of different imagery and a whole lot of different strange stories that, you know, that has to do with a bunch of flying creatures with heads of people or heads of lions or bears and and we've had scrolls and we've had seven bowls and lampstands and there's just a whole lot going on in this book that can be really really intimidating but I absolutely love the way that that we have taken in and the perspective that we've taken while we've read this together Um, That goes back to what John, the author, speaks of in chapter 1, that whoever reads this book is going to be blessed. And piggybacking off of what Pastor Nathan spoke about last week, if you were here, he talked about having wonder, you know, having wonder in the way that we see the world and the way that we read scripture and the way that we view our relationships with one another, just having this mindset and this lens of wonder. But I also think there could be a misconception from that, that when we think about there's something that we have to wonder, that means that, well, I'm never going to really fully understand it, and so I'm not going to try. I'm just going to leave it over here on the shelf and leave it alone. And I don't think that that's what, necessarily what we need to do. One of my favorite quotes um, is by a guy named Richard Rohr, and he says this about mystery, which a lot of what we read in Revelation has to do with mystery. A lot of what we deal with in life is mysterious. And that can often be overwhelming, but I love this perspective that he gives. And he says that mystery isn't something that you cannot understand. It's something that you can endlessly understand. There is no point at which you can say, I've got it. Always and forever, mystery gets you. And so that's the mindset I want us to have, not only when we're reading through books like Revelation, but just the way that we live our lives is, even though we may not fully understand it at the moment, we can continue to grow deeper and deeper in our love and relationship with God and with others, and it's never going to stop. It's never ending. You can still keep going. There's no moment where you can just be like, well, this is all, all there is. And if you is, if you do think that, then that's just the encouragement to go deeper because there's always more. And so before we really get into, because I like to, I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd myself. I love listening to um, people who talk about the, like the Hebrew and the Greek and people who dive into that stuff. And so I really want us, before we dive back into, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12 this morning. Before we dive into it and kind of do a quick overview Just again, the perspective I want us to have with this book is similar to, you know, when we're reading these images like today, we're going to be reading about a giant lady with a crown of 12 stars who's about to give birth. And then there's this red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and and seven crowns, which is kind of wild to think about. And he's just sitting there waiting to to eat up this baby as soon as she gives birth. And so that's a like super weird picture. That's absolutely insane. And and there's a lot of that that's going on in this chapter. But it's really hard to kind of get caught up in that and think, well, I'm not getting any of this. So I'm going to go back and read uh, something else. I'm going to go back and read Harry Potter where I can actually understand some of this stuff. But what John is giving us is similar to putting on 
a lens to see the world. And so I don't need glasses. But when we put on glasses, especially those of us who need them, or even I wish I had some 3D glasses, like the old little paper ones that had like one lens that's red and one that's blue. I mean, y'all, y'all remember back, I think it was like 2011 when 3D was the stuff. There was 3D TVs. They were like shooting sporting events in 3D. And then they just disappeared after like a couple months. But if you're like watching something in 3D, you can't really see what's going on if you don't have a lens to see it through. But as soon as you put on that lens, it comes to life. And you may not be able to like maybe get with what's happening, but you can at least see it and you can start to dissect it and begin to, you know, meditate on it and understand it. And so as we read through this chapter, I want to encourage you, like this is, we're going to be looking at how we can see the world through the lens of Christ. And so, again, just a quick overview of what's happened up to this point, because nothing that happens in Scripture happens in a vacuum. It's like it's all connected. It's all, I believe that it's one arcing story that all leads to Jesus. And so just particularly in this book, we've had, we talked about when we started the encouragement to the seven churches that were being persecuted. Uh, We have this vision of heaven where we talked about um, how amazing worship is and this, this window that John got to peek through and see all of these elders and creatures all worshiping God. And he hears this voice talking about the Lion of Judah is here, which is just the imagery of like how ancient Israel would have seen the Messiah coming to take over the world. And he turns and there's a slain lamb. And that slain lamb is Jesus being the center of history, the just the top of everything was leading to this point, and it's only Jesus that can open this scroll, which symbolizes God's plan and purposes for the world. And so then we have like these, all these different stories about seven um, trumpets and seven bowls and stuff like that, which we won't get into. But here is a break in, in John's revelation away from, from that imagery, and we get into what's called the seven signs. And basically at this point... In Revelation, these seven signs are a replay of what has happened back in in the story of Scripture. And so I'm going to start reading, if you want to open your Bibles or open your phones, um, to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to be starting at verse 1 here. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars On her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. And its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place God had prepared for her where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. What on earth is happening here? (laughs) 
again, this is like a really weird picture, but I, the way that I want us to attack this this morning to really try to glean of, you know, what we can get from this part of Revelation is to kind of take it piece by piece. And there's four key characters in this vision, in this particular sign that we're going to go through this morning. And the first being the woman. And the woman symbolizes who we are, who we are as people, as human beings, right? And we see and something that I've learned to do over the past few years when reading scripture is when we see some of these signs of imagery and, and certain pictures that are painted to us in the Bible is it's often, especially in the New Testament, it's a flashback to somewhere in the Old Testament. And so here we see a woman with a crown with 12 stars. And so we know that 12, there were 12 tribes of Israel, but also this woman it basically is has the moon under her feet. And so where this takes us is back to Genesis, back to the very beginning, which is exactly where um, the whole chapter is taking us. And so if you want to turn there in your Bibles to Genesis 1, uh, and this is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. In, in Genesis 1, verse 26, And let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness, so that we may rule, they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all of the wild animals, and over all the creatures on the ground. And so that word image there, in Hebrew, it roughly translates to idol image. Translates to an, like a statue. And so when God says when creating Adam and Eve, let's make them in our image, he is creating an idol statue of who God is, which is a very, very powerful image. And so God has given us as people this responsibility as image bearers of God. And so the way that we live, the way that we govern ourselves, the way that we treat other people is all reflected by who created us. And so that's who the woman stands for and the woman's offspring, which we'll talk about later. And so, and also just, there's this beautiful um, psalm in Psalm 8 that also touches on this that I'll read very quickly. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers of the works of your hands, and you put everything under their feet. And so the woman represents where we come from, that we are all image bearers of our creator. And God created us to partner with him in order to spread his love throughout all of creation. And so put a pin in it. So that's what the woman is. The woman is where we come from. It's our identity. It's what God created us and what we were meant to be. So now we get to the real interesting character in the story, which is this seven-headed red dragon, which this dragon represents the chaos around us. All the darkness and the bad stuff that's happening is coming from this dragon. And so it, it's, there's some weird stuff going on here. It has like seven heads, and it has ten horns, and it has seven crowns. And I've never in my life seen a dragon wearing a crown, so I don't really know how to think of that in my mind. But, but basically what's, what's being going on here is, again, going back to Genesis, in, in a lot of ancient literature and in, in the Bible, serpents and dragons were very closely connected. 
And so again, this dragon represents that serpent in the garden in Genesis 3. And so it's the same serpent that went to Eve and to Adam and told them, you don't, this, all this stuff that you're hearing about, um, about not to eat from the, the tree of good and evil, no. Like, God's just afraid of what you'll become. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And we all know how the story goes there as they take the fruit and their eyes are opened. And basically, it's something that was really eye-opening to me of another way to look at that tree is another way of looking at it is this the tree of deciding good and evil for yourself. Deciding good and evil for ourselves. And so this dragon represents this other way, this other path away from what we were originally meant to be of partnering with God and being image bearers. And the dragon here promotes a different way that's marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And it's talk, James talks about this very strongly in James chapter 3, where he calls this way demonic. Um, but I just want to read this for you. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. And so here this dragon, the serpent, is representing this way of living and of being. And the seven heads, some scholars believe it, it meant like the, all the kingdoms of the world that had been in rebellion against God. I know you guys that go to Man Cave, y'all have been talking about some of that in Genesis, about all the crazy stuff that happened after that. And so this dragon is just representing all the, the chaos and the disorder that is happening around us that is so easy for us to get caught up in when we're not paying attention. But... Something really cool here is that, as we know, that's not the end of the story. And that even at the beginning, right after that happened, God set a plan in motion to reverse that. Which comes from Genesis chapter 3, um, starting in verse 14. Even in one of the darkest times, or sorry, so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put amenity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so even here, God is saying, because of what you have done, you will not have the final word. There is someone who is coming who's going to crush your head, but even though we see here that will strike his heel, so a deathly blow to the heel. And that's, this is what this whole picture is going on. I know it's kind of crazy, but just, just try to connect those two things, is that this is a picture back to in Genesis of this dragon waiting to, to eat this woman's baby, which again, that's, it's hard for me to imagine as well. But it, it's going back to this imagery of God saying, this evil in the world is not going to last because someone is coming who's going to take that. And then we get to our next character in the story, which is the son, which is Jesus. 
And it's depicted Jesus here of having an iron scepter, so having authority over all things that God has created. And we see that even though the creature was there ready to pounce, God swoops in and takes them up to heaven. And so this represents Jesus' death and resurrection. And so the sun here represents Jesus in charge. Jesus in charge. And as the psalmist says in Psalm 2, also just about this picture here, is that Jesus has been given authority over the whole earth. And Jesus has defeated the dragon through his death and resurrection. Or in other words, Jesus has defeated the dragon through his unconditional love for us. And we see this battle that's raging on here. And I, I won't read it just for the sake of time, but there's this battle that's raging on here. And we think of battle, we think of, you know, blood, sweat, tears, all of this violent and crazy stuff going on. But it's, it's easy to get caught up in that. But when we look at the life of Jesus and how he attacked darkness, how he stood in the gap for us and how he dealt with things of this world, as he didn't go out and just fight them like we would see in the movies, right? No, Jesus loved unconditionally. He loved unconditionally to the point of dying for us. And we know that here that him being taken up to the Father's throne, that means that death didn't have the final word, that even his love was so powerful that it even defeated death. That it even defeated death. And so Jesus is taken up to the throne. And then we see here, if you want to read on, um, in Revelation 12, we see that there's this battle going on with the, the angel Michael and the one-third of the stars or the, um, that the dragon had taken out. There's this battle in heaven, and it's cast to earth. And then there's a song that's being sang, and, and that song talks about the offspring of the woman, which is us. This is where we come in. We as the offspring of the woman, this is now telling us how we are to live into this victory. How we are to live into this victory. And this is really the main point I want us to talk about this morning. So if you would read along with me here again in in Revelation 12, starting at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Now I want you to underline this or put a pin in this or whatever you can do, but just remember this phrase. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as a shrink from death. Triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. What a powerful image here. What a beautiful image here that John gives us. Jesus has given us the tools to overcome this dragon, to overcome this chaos. And he does that through remaining, us remaining faithful and us loving our enemies 
just as Jesus did. And so I know we had just been through a lot, and so we just went through this woman and this dragon and then the son, but now we're here, and this is where I want us to really camp out this morning and to really talk about what this means. And so number one, we know that there is a lot of stuff happening in the world because here John sees a battle that is raging on. There's a conflict that is going on between the forces of good and the forces of evil. It's very easy to fall asleep to that or to ignore it, but I think there's something very important here that, that John is trying to tell us. Is that we may try to think of overcoming something by our own power or by a routine or by whatever. What, what is being shown to us here is that we overcome this by the way that we love people. And I want to talk about that word in particular, love. Is that there is several different Greek words for the word love that the writers of the Gospels and the Apostles could have used to describe Jesus' love for other people and the way that Jesus um, treated people. I think there's about four to eight in the Bible alone to our one word of love that could have been used. And so like some of you have heard probably like Philadelphia, like that's the city of brotherly love, and that's what it means. It's like a brotherly love. Um, and all these other different like, aspects of love, but this is the one in particular that is used the most in the New Testament, and it's agape. And agape is basically just this selfless love, and it's not just a feeling, it's not just something that we feel or we think, but it's an action. And that this love is something that we will love someone we will act in someone's best interest without expecting anything in return. Without anything in return. And this is what Jesus did throughout his whole ministry and his whole life, is loving people unconditionally in a way where they couldn't pay him back. When Jesus went out to the edges of the town where all the, the people who were sick had leprosy were he went out there, and he was with them, he talked to them, and he touched them, and he healed them without expecting a thank you. I believe there's a story in Luke where he healed 12 lepers, and how many came back to thank him? Just one. And was he mad? No. And there's stories throughout the whole Bible of Jesus healing people to where he, he's not asking for anything else from them, he'll invite them, he'll give them an invitation, but he doesn't, there's no expectation there. And then we see the way that he feeds 5,000 people out in the wilderness while he's teaching. He didn't expect them to Venmo him to reimburse for that meal, right? He didn't expect them to pay for it, he didn't expect a thank you from that. He saw a need. And he met it because he saw them and he had compassion on them. So Jesus saw the need and he met the need, not expecting there to be anything from him in return. And even, and this is probably the thing that really stands out to me the most, is whenever, you know, we see when he goes to the temple and he sees people selling doves and he sees people 
using the temple for what it's not supposed to be. They're not using it to worship. They're using it for things that will, for their own gain. I mean, he goes and he starts flipping tables and causing a ruckus, and he starts yelling at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law about all the wrong things that they're doing. And in essence, he's just saying that you've used all of this, like all these scriptures and the law and, and all of these practices and festivals as a way to up your status in order to trap people, in order for you to gain and not really serving them. And normally we hear of like broken systems and we think, okay, well, we got to like rally up the folks and we got to go and not kick the door down and we got to go change things and make things better because we know the best way. So we're going to go in here. We're going to make it the way things are supposed to be. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't get the disciples. All right, guys, we're going back to the temple. We're going to overthrow this thing and, and all is going to be good. No, he goes he continues teaching. He goes back to the Mount of Olives. He knows very well that the Pharisees are plotting to kill him. And what does Jesus do? He lets them. He lets them plot. He allows one of his own disciples to hand him over. He allows for to have an unjust trial of which he barely speaks a word. He goes in front of the high priest. He goes in front of Pilate himself, who didn't want anything to do with it, and Jesus let them. They made him carry that cross as far as he could take it. He let him flog them, take his clothes, embarrass him, put a crown of thorns on his head, and he let them nail him to that cross. Why? Because he loves them. Because he loves them. They were his enemies. They hated him. They couldn't stand him. They tried everything in their power, the three years in his ministry, to try to trip him up, to say something that would get him in trouble so they can discredit him. But Jesus allowed it to happen because he loves them. And he loves us. And so that begs the question, how are we treating other people? How are we treating and loving those who are close to us? How are we serving the people at work who annoy us? How are we treating the people that we can't stand, that we can't see eye to eye with? That we can't understand why they think this way, and why they do that, if they would just listen to me, everything would be all right. How are we treating them? How are we treating our kids when they mess up and do something that we don't want them to do? When they make bad grades, when they get in trouble at school? How do they view us in those times? Because if we are to be image bearers of God who Jesus is the picture of God as a human as God is one of us then we are to love like Jesus and we have to ask the question how are we treating other people 
Are we treating people or do we have relationships or we have expectations of what we can get out of it? Of what I can gain? Are we putting that other person first? I'm not even necessarily saying someone you don't like or your enemies or maybe you've gone through a really hard relationship and you're like, I don't know how I can love this person. Just from experience, maybe loving them is letting them go. Maybe loving them is moving on. Over the past year, I dealt with something um, I won't go into that was really personal where I felt really betrayed um, for, for a group of people that I thought I was really putting my all into being there for them and serving them and loving them to only just lose everything within a couple of days. And I was really bitter for a very long time. And I really wrestled with this question of how, how do I love someone who doesn't love me back? And my, my wife, Megan, she told me this, you know, forgiveness is an everyday practice. As we wake up every day and we have to decide if we're going to forgive someone. We can choose one day to not and the next day to go ten steps backward and start dragging that bitterness around again. And maybe you're there okay, and that's okay. Because I want you to know that you don't have to do that. But just this love that, that Jesus shows us, that is the way that this whole cycle works, is that when we receive that love, which again, the way that Jesus loved people, he didn't force them. He didn't force them to love us. God doesn't force us to love God. Jesus invites us is a gift that we receive. And when we receive that gift, it should overflow in every aspect of our life. It should be an outpouring of love to our families, to our friends, to our coworkers, to our church community, to your nephew softball team or, or a baseball team or whatever it may be. It outpours in, into everything because it doesn't come from us. It comes from God. And so, and, and this one, or these few verses in 1 John, I think, really sum this up beautifully about what this love looks like. And here John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. And knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Listen to this. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we might, we also ought to love one another. This love is a powerful love. 
It changes families. It heals relationships. It turns communities upside down. It's contagious. And it is our mission, our very calling, is to share this love, is to reflect it. Because if we are image bearers of God, and if God is love, then aren't we to also reflect that same love? And we know, and I know there's a, this world is crazy, and we're complex people. Relationships are hard. Life is really tricky and complex, and so there's no simple solution to this. Because only you can answer that question of how you are treating others. Only you know what that looks like in your life and in your context. The love that I share with someone is going to be different from the, the love that you share with, with someone. And that's part of the journey. It's finding out and living in that way. It's the everyday decision to do that. The everyday decision to, to act, to love people without expecting anything in return out of their own best self-interest and not trying to love them into an image that I am creating. Because that's not love. And I know, again, there, there's a battle raging on, but the good news is the dragon is defeated. And we read shortly after that poem that the dragon falls to earth but he's still pursuing the woman, still coming after her, trying to, to win what is already lost. But God protects the woman. And something really, really interesting is that, that 1,260 days, that, that adds up to about three and a half years. And three and a half is half of seven. And seven in the Bible means completeness. And so this beautifully shows of, you know, though there is things attacking us and coming after us, that anxiety is coming after us and addiction may be chasing after us or whatever it may be, that God has created places of safety, places of peace and comfort for us. He's gone ahead and prepared it. And when the enemy gets near, like he gives, he gives the woman wings like eagles to escape so when we're in step with God God's going to give us a way out God's going to prepare for us a place of safety and maybe you're here this morning and, and you don't really know if you deserve that love or you don't understand it you don't know how it could be true I want to read to you, to this to you as an encouragement that God doesn't hate you God doesn't want to kill you God loves you despite your deepest faults and your deepest flaws 
and failures and your worst moments, God loves you. You've been made for a purpose and we fail to attain that purpose. And God still loves you. How do you know? Look at Jesus and you'll discover it. So my prayer is that you receive that love this morning. That the Spirit is moving and that you, the Spirit convicts you and that you're able to, just like we talked about at the beginning, see your life with a different lens. That even though there's heartbreak and there's failure and there's darkness, there's also a light. And that light is what created everything that you see. And so though it's hard, hold on to that hope. And people will see that hope. They'll wonder about it and they'll ask about it. And you can then share your testimony, your story. And that's what we do every day is we share, we share stories. So what story are you sharing? What is the testimony that you are giving? Because I would argue if our testimony isn't lifting up Jesus, isn't pointing other people to that life-giving, unconditional, grace-filled love, then we're missing something. And to close this morning, I just want to give you this practical way of, of what this may look like to you, this radical way of loving people. And it comes from this poet that Megan got this new book a couple days ago. Um, and I won't mention the poet's name because I'll, I'll botch it and I want to respect her. Um, but she says this, You change the world by helping others change the way they see themselves. God changed the world because he changed the way that we view ourselves. We're not here by accident. You have a purpose. And that purpose is to reflect God right where you are. And we're here to do it with you. We're all trying, and it's really hard, but that's what this community is for, so we can walk and do that together. So my prayer to you this week is that you are able to change people's lives purely through helping them see their worth by the way you love them. Will you go to our God in prayer with me this morning? Dear God, your, your love is just so, it's so uncomprehendable. It's so hard to grasp or to understand at times. And, and then there's moments, brief moments oftentimes where it just becomes crystal clear. And, and, and no, it's, it's tough to take that action because of, God, we all have, we're all dealing with hurt. We're all dealing with traumas or all these different things that are happening. And it's so difficult to be able to, to love in those spaces. But 
I pray that anyone this morning that just feels unworthy of this love or, or that, God, that they don't deserve it, is that you still give it. You still give it freely. I pray that I know you're at work at, in people's hearts this morning, God, and I just pray that, you know, I know that everything that I said that, that comes from just me and does not come from you, it's going to be like a seed falling on hard soil. It's just going to bounce off. And Lord, I pray that anything that has just come from myself, that it bounce off the hearts of everyone in here and everyone online and everyone outside, and that it is forgotten. But Lord, I pray that the words that have come from you stay right there planted on the heart because, Lord, when the heart breaks, that may be the first thing to fall in. God, your love is transforming. It is never-ending. There's so many words that I can try to use to describe it, and I would run out before I could. Lord, may everyone in here know that they are loved deeply by you. So deeply. You know, you can count the hair on our heads. You've known us since before we were born. I pray this love transforms us just a little bit more today. Lord, we know just a, a little bit of you is better than a lot of something else. Lord, may that be our prayer. Jesus, is in your name that we pray. Amen.